I'm very excited about our latest episode of Soundtracking, which sees me joined by supremely gifted actor Edward Norton. Well, I say actor. He's a little bit more than that, having written, produced and directed his latest project, the neo-noir Motherless Brooklyn. Based on a novel by Jonathan Lethem, Motherless Brooklyn tells the story of Lionel Esrog, a private investigator with Tourette syndrome trying to solve the murder of his mentor. The film serves up a sonic feast from our friend Daniel Pemberton's wonky jazz-infused score to an original song by Tom York featuring Flea and a considerable contribution from virtuoso horn player Wynton Marsalis. Plenty more on all these gentlemen shortly. First, a word from our friends at Encoda, which is like Spotify, but for musicians, or at least for those musicians that read sheet music. Encoda is an app containing a massive digital library of sheet music sourced directly from 100 leading publishers. Encoda has all the tools you'd expect to make playlists, mark up scores and play offline and it can be used on your tablet, mobile or desktop. So you can study and play your favourite works on one app for £9.99 a month. Now you've heard this before I'm sure but Encoda was designed to make a musician's life easier and more affordable. So much time and money and effort can be saved on consolidating all of your musical practice and study in one place. And Encoda, like music, study and performance, is a very personal experience. Now, everyone's taste is different and every favourite piece of yours can be assigned a unique memory or feeling. You can keep all those pieces and visit those memories and feelings whenever and wherever you wish on Encoda. Simplify all of your study, practice and performing into one app with Encoda and explore a whole universe of music. Encoda, made by musicians for musicians. And so to Messrs Norton, York, Marsalis and Pemberton, starting with the latter's cue, the woman in the photo. Welcome to Soundtrack, and it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, and this film that you've, well, you've spent, I believe, a long time with this in your head, Motherless Brooklyn. Before we dive into the music for this, can I ask when you first read the story and, and why you think it connected with you? I read it before it was published, actually, because uh, the author, Jonathan Lethem, and I knew some people in common. I got wind that he had written a book about a teoretic detective with obsessive compulsive disorder who tries to solve the murder of his friend. And I really was hooked on Tourette Detective. At that point, I was like, say no <laughs> yeah. more. Yeah. Get it, get it to me. Uh, no, I, I did. I did. I was, I've always been interested in obsessive compulsive tendencies and Tourette's is a very unique and 
complex condition.、Mm. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but there's whenever I've heard about people who have really extreme versions of both of those conditions, it it I always think there, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, I really I really feel I relate very deeply to the feeling that the brain will not let go of a thread or an idea or a set of sounds.、Um, I get very hung up on sounds and patterns, and、um, as an actor, I've always. Felt since I was a kid, I've felt a very strong compulsion to mimic things, to、yeah. try to wrap my mouth around what is what it is that's making something sound a person's accent sound a certain way, and turns of phrase will get caught in my head, as they do many people. You know that that the classic would be, "Why can't I get that song out of my head?" Right? <laughs> yeah. But I, so I think we all have a dimension of that within us, and I think we actually all, in terms of Tourette's, I think we all relate to. The idea of an argument going on in our head between one part of our mind and another part、Absolutely. of our mind, a part of our mind that says that has an impulse to do something slightly anarchistic.、Uh, I want that. I want it now. And the other said, "No, we're not going to do that." <laughs>、yeah. Like you know, and the idea in Tourette's that that's happening on the outside and not just on the inside is is sort of fascinating. Okay, listen, I got something wrong with me. That's the first thing to know. I got threads in my head. I got threads in my head, man. I twitch and shout a lot.、Eh. Makes me look like a damn freak show. Can't you ever、I'm、cut that out? I'm sorry. Touch it, Bailey. I'm sorry. But inside my head's an even bigger mess. I can't stop twisting things around. Words and sounds, especially, have to keep playing with them until they come out right. Sorry. Jeez, forget I asked. Like I said, a damn mess. Then I started working for Frank. So it, the character in the book is so beautifully rendered. He is such a hot mess of contradictions. He is dysfunctional but intelligent. He is a tough Brooklyn orphan raised in the streets, but he is sensitive and lonely. And it just, as an actor, it was sort of like a seven-course meal. It was like, how would <laughs>、yeah. you even do? How would you actually do this? How would you create a fully realized portrait and both? Enjoy the the complexity of the condition itself, but also be able to see through it to the deeper emotional yeah, yeah, yeah. humanity of the person, and not have it be a, a running gag. Yeah, not just a seven course meal for an actor, but to write it, to produce it, to direct it as well. This is something you very much wanted it to be your vision and your so much so that you you know you you said it in the fifties, where the book set in the nineties. Yeah, it evolved that way. In the beginning, I really was sort of an actor who wanted the part. I started realizing that I, I was writing other scripts at the time, and I was interested in adapting it and taking on that dimension of it. That led to with Jonathan a conversation about the the, the style of the book has a very fifties feeling to it. It's a little bit literary surrealism, and、uh, it's not surrealism, but it it feels. It feels like it's pulled from another time,、yeah. like a Raymond Chandler detective novel. And for a variety of reasons, it felt almost more authentic to set it in that time because the people in the book they are a little bit unpc. They don't feel higher. They don't feel entirely modern. They call him freak show, and they they talk like fifties gumshoes. And、yeah. I didn't want it to feel like the Blues Brothers, you know, like or <laughs>、yeah. Pulp Fiction. Like not that those aren't great, but I didn't、yeah. want it to be ironic. Yeah, and John and Jonathan. Also, like the idea of the character's emotional isolation being real, being painful, not、yeah. not not all、um, glib, and 
once we had that idea, then it opened up the challenge of saying, well, what's the mystery about then? Because in the 50s,、um, other things were going on. And it opened up into some things that I'd been interested in for a long time, very dark, very, a very dark part of New York's history that、yeah. is little known. And in many ways, I think, does what really good noir can do, which is, which is remind us that underneath, underneath the narrative of who we are and what our society is like, There are dark things going on corruption and power and greed and rape. And, you know, th、yeah. th that the, the part of who we are that we don't like to look at has to be looked at sometimes because if we don't confront it, it's going to do us damage, you know? I,、yeah. And I like that tradition in noir films. I think the idea of peeling the cornerback and making sure we confront what's happening in the shadows is actually like one of those ways that film plays a, 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 A healthy role in the collective conscious, you know, yeah, I mean?、um, so that we don't get complacent, we don't get just cruising along <laughs> in our own daily struggles and and letting people do dark things because we're not paying attention. Frank Minna, Private Eye. Boys, Frank, frankly, frankly, Franco. He's the one who taught me how to use my head, turn it into a strength. He gave me a place in this crappy world until I screwed up. Brooklyn's just in trouble now. Ooh. Does anybody know what Frank was into on this? There's something going down and it's big, and they were not happy about what he found. We find who did this and we square accounts. If I figure it out, I'm gonna make him regret it. I promise you that. That's her. That's the girl that Frank was following. I think she found something. What happens to poor people in this city wasn't news yesterday and it won't be tomorrow. Where's everybody go? Mostly just disappear. This town is run by Moses Randolph. When someone isn't seen for what they truly are, that's a very dangerous thing. Do you have the first inkling how power works? Power is knowing that you can do whatever you want and not one person can stop you. Those people are invisible. They don't exist. If you threaten his work, he will destroy you. You're all alone? You got no idea. You're webbed up in this somehow, and these people aren't gonna stop. If, if, if. You got a head just like mine, always turning things around. Some people call it a gift, but it's a brain affliction just to say. You remember what I said? She doesn't know. She doesn't know. What don't I know? I think the, the way that you've written it is so there's so much truthfulness in in the in the script and you know I was I think when I watched it on Monday there was a kind of gasp at, at so many parts of it as well in terms of you know that kind of truth that is within the you know the events that are unfolding as you as he kind of deep dives deep into this yeah world there's a and, there's a resonance and well the thing is too though that it's interesting isn't it because the past we sometimes have more clarity about what actually happened in the past when we're living in history. We we realize like things are unfolding too fast. We can't and we can't see all the layers. In the moment that you're in, you can have a sense of what's going on, but you can't have much certainty. The past, we've had time to dissect it. We've had time to dig and find out what really went on. And sometimes within what really went on is a lesson. There's more clarity, and we can 
we can take a, a prescriptive lesson from it, or we can be inspired by it, or we can be cautioned by yeah. it. Um, and so I think uh, that's how we we felt about this. But all that said, that can sound a little almost like a documentary or a history lesson. I think that films are not, you know, narrative films. They have to work first on a sensual level. They that you have to. Um, I think great films that really work their movie magic in the first minute or two, hmm. the the photography, the sound mix, the music, the actors and their gravity, you know, they have to like flick a switch in your head where you go, ooh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. This is right. Yeah. This feels good. This, 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 I don't feel like I'm looking at Sit people back. playing dress up. You're like, oh. I feel like I have gone through the screen and into a world that has depth. And if we think about the films, you know, we grew up on, you know, whether it's The Godfather or L.A. Confidential or Out of Africa, not just detective films, you know, yeah. part of the way they function is somehow in the very early on, you go, this feels right. And you get that little shivery feeling of, oh, I'm being, I've really been taken somewhere, but this is very well done. And now I am just happy to be here. <laughs> yes, right? please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. More, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Take me on the carpet ride. Yeah. I'm very happy about the way this feels. Yeah. Not what I think, not what's going on, just how it feels. Yeah. And, and music is a huge part of that. And I think uh, for us, the 50s lent itself to, a, a, the, you know, the richness of jazz and all this kind of stuff. But we also wanted to weave my notion was that we wanted to Lionel's head has so much dissonance in it yeah. that for me it spoke to something more modern or what I would call not constrained by the conventions of a particular time. You wanted to create a sonic landscape that's reflective of the churning kind of looping dissonance that's in Lionel's head. Yeah. And to me that as a fan of Radiohead, I, I felt in a very specific way that that a lot of what I love about Tom's writing and their music is that it captures this dual this dual feeling of like sort of heart longing, you mm -hmm. know, real emotional longing in the heart, but also that sense of the crush and dissonance of living in the modern world that we live in. Yeah. And um and I wanted to try to thread a kind of a, a postmodern neo noir dimension into the it so that it was both it's sort of a blend up of those things. Play music. Yeah, I play guitar. Do you think that's an an important part to have when you are 
talking about music and the emotion that it has within your film. Yes, I th I think it helps. Um, first of all, it you know musical erudition, meaning just like knowing a lot of music, is helpful because you because you can make reference to what you're going for in a specific way. Like mm -hmm. um, you, you're not trying to sort of use words to describe something. You can just say. You, you know, you can, you can reference Mingus or you can reference Blues and Roots versus like, you know, you're saying we're talking Blues and Roots, not kind of blue. You can, you yeah. can, you know, <laughs> describe, if you know the difference in sort of bop, hard bop, modal jazz, you, you, you can talk to a composer or uh, someone and they can move more quickly into an alignment with what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I think understanding some dimensions of musical composition can help at a certain phase but you know you you layer that sensual aesthetic layer you need character in the sense that you need empathy i think you audiences need need someone that they sort of relate to i i like joseph campbell's line that um stories work best if they're transparent like i think you see through them and see oh this is really about me or uh if you get that dimension going then you have emotional identification and that is what can really pull you through a story. And and everything we were talking about at the beginning, history, context, politics, you know, mm -hmm. message yeah. is really like all the way in the back to me. To, to me, that's if you fall into it feeling like a, a, a history lecture, you lose the emotional component, the emotional hold that I think is what best films have at the yeah. Core. It is an incredible journey to go through with the film, but it does kind of afterwards, it stays with you and you do kind of, there are so many questions in your head when you leave the film as well. And I think that's a sign of a great film in terms of it's, it's kind of opened up curiosity into things and yes, questioning things. Yes, I think that's the difference in the passive experience of a film and the active experience of a film, I think. I often say a film, a film either answers questions for you or it, or it makes you ask questions. And yeah. Sometimes that can get confused with comprehension. And people, well, I didn't understand. That's not a good thing. That, that's, <laughs> but that's, that's a little bit off target to me because comprehension is a very different thing. Like having your brain activated so that you wonder, so that you're puzzling and rolling a thing around. If you come out of a film and you say, did that really happen? Did I understand that right? Is that what was being suggested? Could that have really happened? You know, I mean, that's, Certainly Chinatown, one of the great ones oh of all God, time. Yeah. You, you know, if you think about that film, you are in the dark until the last 20 minutes. You have literally almost no idea what's going on in that film. And actually, at the moment that you begin to think that you understand what the, corrupt, what the nature of the corruption is mm -hmm. around the water and the theft and the people making fortunes off of creating a fake drought and then buying up farmland and all this very complex stuff, the truth is that's not even what's going on at all. It's about incest and rape. Mm -hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? And you come away from that movie going, did that happen? Is that, wait a minute, is that, you don't remember every mechanism of the corruption, but you do kind of come away with an essential sense that Los Angeles's original sin is that it stole its water and that, and that there was, it was a water game, that that's the nature of the sin that's under this city, that, that under sunny LA is the crime, is a crime, yeah. a big crime, you know, and that the people who did it, their corruption metastasized into the most grotesque of things, right? Yeah. And it happens in music, it happens in films, we get stuff that I call like, it's anesthetic, it's like just, it's like a Valium. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a quick meant, fix. It's, but it's also meant to make you 
shut your brain down. And and there is, you know, we do, everyone can relate to literally that's the, I want to veg out. You know what I mean? I want to sit down and I don't want to think. I want to be entertained. Yeah. There is that kind of experience where in essence, we want a passive experience. We want to, um, but I think the things that stick with us are the things that do the opposite, that activate the brain, activate the imagination, the mind, yeah. and force, demand your participation. You know, they demand your active participation. And they and those are the ones that do leave you thinking and mulling. Fight Club's another good example of that. Yeah, I think the very fact that all the things we said, you know, Fight Club is in the very, very beginning of it. It's not, you don't know what's going on. It's aesthetic. The camera moves, the sound design on that film immediately pull you the voiceover. It, you get pulled into a headspace where you go, whoa, this is very high octane. This is very surreal. You know right away that you're in a surreal, ironic, you know, sardonic mm -hmm place you're smiling yeah. at the tone yeah. um you don't know what's going on people are always asking me if i know tyler durden three minutes this is it ground zero would you like to say a few words to mark the occasion <laughs> with a gun barrel between your teeth you speak only in vowels i can't think of anything for a second, I totally forget about Tyler's whole controlled demolition thing, and I wonder how clean that gun is. It's getting exciting now. That old saying, how you always hurt the one you love? Well, it works both ways. We have front row seats for this theater of mass destruction. The demolitions committee of Project Mayhem wrapped the foundation columns of a dozen buildings with blasting gelatin. In two minutes, primary charges will blow base charges and a few square blocks will be reduced to smoldering rubble. I know this because Tyler knows this. Two and a half. Think of everything we've accomplished. And suddenly, I realize that all of this, the gun, the bombs, the revolution, has got something to do with a girl named Marla Singer. Then you start to enter in because a person is telling you their story he starts to become you. He, yeah. he, he starts to become the proxy for you as he describes his life. There's that identification phase, right? Mm -hmm. And only then do you start to sort of go, what is going on here? <laughs> and of course, in that film, again, you really, you think you know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You really don't know what's yeah. going on. I watched it again last you night know? and it was an absolute treat to sit down and watch that film again. Um, oh, it was great. By the way, it destabilized a lot of people. It wasn't, it, it's not an easy experience and there's a lot that you miss. I always find the the um, in the press sometimes you see things saying people saying about toxic masculinity. I sort of go yes, but that's a bit reductive. It's it's really about growing up. It's about being afraid to grow up, 
and going through the, the sexiness of the middle finger being raised, the sexiness of nihilism, the sexiness of rebellion, of feeling I'm going to break away from convention and I'm going to give it all the middle finger and I'm going to go down into kind of a destructive kind of a yeah. um, resistance to this thing. But really very much at the end going, wait a second, that's not the person I want to be. I don't want to do harm. I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stop that. And I'm going to take Link up with another person. And that's who I want to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And of course, the buildings are falling and it's all fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. the pixies are coming on. But it is, but it is, but it is, I do think very, I do think it is very much about a journey yeah. toward maturity. Um, I think you, Fincher used to say like, like in, uh, there was some Buddhist koan, like in the, the path of maturity, you, you have to kill your parents, kill God, and then kill your Except, teacher. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? So, and, and I think that that's, that's kind of what goes on in that, but he does say no to Tyler in the end. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I think that that's to not, acknowledge that is to sort of miss the point you know what I mean yeah I am the score on that but we need to talk more about your film and the music because Daniel Pemberton who's been on our podcast a couple of times what a wonderful human being why was he the right man to be part of your team on this because there's a wonderful collaboration between you mentioned Tom York but then also Wynton Marsala as well who's just you know in terms of like his playing is just extraordinary and yeah Wynton Wynton um to pause on him, he, you know, he, he's, he's one of the great jazz trumpeters as an instrumentalist in the modern age. He's, his tone, his, his musicianship, his control, his, the breadth of the styles he's able mm. to play in. Um, he's, you know, one of the great masters uh, on that instrument. He's also compositionally like a druid. He he does classical. He does jazz. He does, you know, he work. He's got deep, deep, deep erudition in film music and in mm -hmm. film. He's he's a real cultural historian. He's he's just an enormous, enormous. Um, he's he's more than a talent. He really is kind of one of these. Um, he's one of these high priests to me of culture, and so you can go to him. We have a jazz club in the film and pieces get played by a band. He helped me put the band together. He put the musicians together. We have a trumpet player who's very Miles Davis-like, played by the great actor Michael K. Williams. But Winton plays the horn under uh, his performance. Mm -hmm.
but from there we sort of Tom had written this ballad for the film that was sort of a melancholy and also slightly political um, ballad in the yeah. sense um, I had gone to him and said let's uh, we I, I want something that feels like Lionel's song Lionel's mournful ballad of being lonely but also living in dark times living in times that are oppressive yeah and Tom came back with this beautiful song daily battles adapted it into a, a 50s Miles Davis style jazz rendering so that we could use it in the club as if it was a piece in the period, which is all wonderful. So we have this kind of mashup going on between mm. Tom's sensibility and more of a classical jazz sensibility. <laughs> was this song and the music of this club and then I had about like two hours of film <laughs> yeah. that needed that needed to reflect that weird sort of neo-noir synergy of, it does of so Tom's much. modernism and classical jazz and I I was like who really has the chops for this who who can straddle that <laughs> world and in all the film music I listened to the person who I felt was doing both really terrific like melodic you know writing and also doing very innovative use of of non-traditional sound and instrumentation was daniel pemberton and i loved the spare kind of stuff he had done on steve jobs yeah. i liked the more muscular stuff he had done on um the ridley scott film all the money in the world molly's game as well was extraordinary. yeah molly's game has a great great so, groove yeah. to it you know it's sexy and, yeah. and fun
when I met him, he was finishing up Into the Spider Verse, that very innovative, um, incredible, yeah, thing. Yeah. And when I, but literally the first time I talked to him, I said, "What is that?" He, there was this cr- crinkling <laughs> sound in the phone, and he said, "Oh, he said he goes, oh, I'm I'm wrapping my percussionist's legs in newspaper." I, I, he goes, I, he, he, "He said I'm having him play his thighs." Um, and he was. He had a drummer, you know, uh, wrapped with his legs, legs, legs wrapped in paper, and he had him playing that to get a percussion sound specific that was like like crunching paper, and it was brilliant, you know. Um, so when I it was we, a bad line for a minute. When we met, um, we met at like one thirty in the morning in London, and he was he was exhausted but sort of exuberant from hmm. finishing that and. Sometimes you sort of test out. It's like dating. You, you, you go. Are we gonna? Do we have the same reference points? Are we gonna get on? And I, and I sort of took a, a wild chance and told him that I really like the Vangelis score for Chariots of Fire, Fire yeah. because uh, it, it, it's a great example of a period film with a very lyrical, very memorable main theme, but then laced the whole score is laced with this synthesizer and and electronic drums and it's like totally totally not what you would expect for for a 1920s running movie There are there are those people who who sort of thumb their nose at Vangelis, like they think it's sort of like I don't know if they think it's it's sort of dated or it feels like eighties or something like that. So it was a little bit of a of a I, I felt like it, he could be like I'm going to finish my Manhattan and leave uh, now that you've mentioned Vangelis. You know what I mean? But fortunately, Daniel was like he. He goes, he goes, oh, the first 25,000 quid I ever made from DJing, I bought the CS80 synthesizer. I own Vangelis's synthesizer. And he was like, you had me at Vangelis. And, uh, he, Good date. Yeah, he did. He, I was like, whew, that went well. But he, um, Daniel came up in London music scene. He wrote about music and technology for Wired magazine. He was a DJ. He, you know, he has a conversancy with electronic music and innovative use of computers and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so, you know, the idea to him of, in a way, taking the aesthetic of like Kid A and Amnesiac and saying, could we do some of that using actual jazz instruments? Mm-hmm. You know, could we 
record saxophones in strange ways and reverse it and loop it, what yeah. would a, what would an actual hi hat cymbal sound like? Run backwards. What would you know? Yeah. What happens to piano chords if you compress them and flip them around and do kind of strange things with them so that we can have classical jazz lyricism and and melody and theme,、mm. but at key moments when when Lionel's head is trying. To reverse and replay and and you know yeah like that scratching bit when he's in the car and he has that kind of eureka moment and it、yes. kind of almost feels like it's kind of a DJ scratching at one yeah, point yeah or like analog、he's, tape rewinding、yeah. you know. Daniel did some beautiful theme things where he took the themes that you've heard in the movie and ran them round, backwards,、uh, and sped up in some ways where they become they become this pulsating melody. And you don't, I, I think, very subliminally, there's there's something in your brain saying, "Wait, I've I, what is this? Yeah, I, I've heard this before, and it is and it is because you're hearing something that you've heard early in the film being run backward." Marvelous job to the to a degree that I'd say,、um, you know, when we asked Winton if he would play lead trumpet on a few of the key parts of the score, 
And when he read the score sheets, he was so impressed by the the total kind of um, composition of it all that yeah. he 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 played the trumpet on on the bulk of the score and had his guys come in his quintet uh, that he assembled and and they they cut these kind of almost new standards based on a few of the themes wow. um, that are in the film. Uh, it's the the one that plays out over the closing credits. When he met Daniel, he was very, he, he, he said, you, you know, you really wrote all this in four weeks. And Daniel said, you know, yeah, I did. And he was like, you're, you're a bad motherfucker. You know, he was like, he basically was like really, um, he was, he was very, um, impressed and delighted. And I think, uh, it's sort of one of those situations you, the, the fun of being a director is you get to call people that you admire. You set up problems, you know, you say, you throw very ambitious things against the wall that, that I think lots of people go a little cross-eyed about, you know, you say Tom York and Wynton Marsalis and the mashup of, of electronic with jazz and all these things. And I think some people go like, is that going to be like olives and chocolate? Like, is that going to be, <laughs> is that going to be like sounds interesting, but actually doesn't taste very good. And then other people go, no, I get that. And, you know, Tom loves Mingus and, and, and Wynton, is not intimidated at all by the idea of of a non-classical dissonance and doing strange things with his instrument. Mm -hmm. and, and when people who have great talent start to lever that talent against the strange idea you've set up, really interesting things can happen. And I think um, that the music kind of almost outperformed my my hopes for it. Even it was it came out. It really elevated the film in the end. And it really it's amazing the degree to which film music when it's when it's really its own thing, not just an amplification of what's being done in the acting yeah. or the script, it can suddenly take something and it does more than sort of smooth it. It really like lifts it to a new emotional level, you know?
Emerson, we run out of time, and I've, I haven't even talked about how brilliant you are in the film and <laughs> yeah, and the script and the directing as well. It really is just an extraordinary job. I hope you do it again soon. You Thanks. know, because um, this is just such a beautifully and brilliant accomplished piece of work. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Ed. From the score to Motherless Brooklyn, that's Motherless County by our old friend Daniel Pemberton, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Edward Norton. My huge thanks to Edward for taking the time to talk to us. Motherless Brooklyn is on general release now with Daniel's score available through our old friends at Water Tower Music. Both are excellent. If you want to hear my conversations with Daniel, you can head to edithbowman.com or your preferred podcast provider. And please do subscribe whilst you're there. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK, where we'll be letting you know about a Christmas bonus relating to this week's guest. Next up, we have the fabulous Noah Baumbach talking to us about his latest film, Marriage Story. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.